The following broadcast is produced by Brookside Meeting House Companies, LLC, doing business as Forget-Me-Not Ancestry. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm Jane Wilcox, and this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Welcome to the show. This morning, we are talking about the New York Supreme Court of Judicature Records and the Chancery Court Records, which are found at the New York State Archives. My guest is Jim Foltz, who is the head of Researcher Services. Uh, Jim was on the show about three years ago in January of 2014, talking specifically about the New York State Archives. And today, he is here specifically talking about the court records that are held at the State Archives. And how this show came about is in January, uh, it was announced with great fanfare that the Supreme Court records and Chancery Court records that were held in New York City uh, were being transferred to the New York State Archives. So the records had been split, and the records pertaining to the district in New York City now were joining the rest uh, that were at the State Archives. And I thought this would be a great opportunity to talk about the merger and also talk about the records in particular and how the Supreme Court of judicature and the Chancery Court records can help with uh, genealogy research. Uh, so to have you here today, welcome to the show. Hello, Jane. How are you? I'm great. And how are you? I'm fine. And we'll start as we did uh, when you were here three years ago. Uh, just briefly, would you tell us what your background is, where you were born, raised, your education, and your careers? I come from Steuben County in upstate New York, south of Rochester. Um, I went to local schools. I have a bachelor's degree in history from the University at Albany, uh, as well as a master's and doctoral degree in history, again, from the University of Rochester. I've worked here at the State Archives uh, most of my working career uh, since 1980, uh, doing a variety of jobs. I'm currently head of researcher services, uh, which means I supervise the public reading room and uh, making records available to the public. Okay, and then how did you get interested in archival work? I, I think it goes back really to junior high school days. I had a very capable uh, social studies teacher in seventh grade. At that time, as many of your listeners may recall, New York State history, local history was part of the curriculum. Uh, he emphasized it because he liked it, uh, and really that was the start of my interest in state and local history, and it's progressed since then to my current position. And so your interest in, in history also uh, included the records themselves? I think it was really an outgrowth of my realization, you know, back in high school days that printed sources are inadequate. I was interested in local history, and of course the local history stopped about 1900. Uh, life didn't stop in 1900. Uh, I realized that newspapers, also public records, uh, would help tell the full story, and I got into those sources way back then. Okay. And then what was your first job at the State Archives? It was really similar to what I do now, but I was not then, of course, a supervisor. Uh, I uh, provided reference services to people using records in the archives or wanting copies of records, which means knowing about state government, the records it produces, uh, where to find those records. Okay. Uh, since right. then, I've done records appraisal, uh, records cataloging, and, as I said, reference services. Okay. And then are you interested in genealogy at all? I was in high school, and I made some very good contacts with much older relatives who told me a lot of things that were really not documented anywhere, but helped me decades later when I got back into genealogy uh, because of the Internet. 
Okay. Um, and then uh, starting our uh, talk about the court records, let's just very briefly um, talk about the state archives. As I said, you you were on the show in January 2014, and, and people can go back and listen to that episode. Mm-hmm. But just, just uh, briefly, uh, tell us a little bit about the history of the New York State Archives, when it, it started, uh, how did it end up where it is today? Mm-hmm. Our archival records, uh, records, historical records of state government go back to the 17th century and up to the nearly to the present, of course. Uh, until the late 1970s, uh, the oldest archival records, historical records of state government were held not by the state archives because there was no state, state archives, but rather by the state library. Uh, the library since 1912 had been located in the Education Building in Albany in uh, 1978. The library and the newly established archives moved to the Cultural Education Center in the Empire State Plaza. That's where we are today. Okay. And then how did the Supreme Court records and the Chancery Court records, the the upstate districts, end up where they are and, and not specifically with the courts still? I'll I'll backtrack a little bit from that question by saying a little bit more about what records in the archives, what records are eligible to be acquired by the archives, and the complexities of New York State government and history. Uh, We acquire only government records, unlike a lot of other states where the state archives acquires also uh, library materials, private papers, business records, and so on. In New York, the state archives acquires historical records of state government, as well as local government records on microfilm. But we have a statewide unified court system, a very complex system with deep roots dating back to the early English colonial period. And those records are considered state records and eligible for transfer to preservation by the state archives. So we have trial courts, we have appellate courts, and... uh, Some of the most important records uh, you referred to in your question are the records of the statewide trial courts before 1847, when there was a major reorganization of the courts under the third state constitution. And those records uh, pertain to all parts of the state, not just the county where they may have been maintained. And therefore, they have statewide significance. And we considered them both endangered and eligible for preservation in the state archives. The courts in New York have always been decentralized. Um, You know, trials occur in each county uh, for the major courts, and there have been uh, really a split-up preservation of court records, uh, either in the county level or regional level, ever since this colonial period, really. So it's a complex system, and we understand it, and we have identified the records we think are most important. And so the archives actively went out to get these records? Absolutely. Uh, The the, uh, pre-1847 statewide, colony-wide court records were maintained in two places, as you uh, referred to in your question. Uh, One place was at the New York County Clerk's Office in Manhattan, Uh, The other place uh, since 1847 was the State Court of Appeals, the state's highest court, the court of last resort, uh, which preserved the records of the upstate uh, regions of the early courts uh, since it was founded. Okay. All right. So then uh, at this point, I think let's talk about the history of each of the courts that were looking at today. So starting with the Supreme Court of Judicature, uh, why and when was it formed? Most people who are residents of New York listening to your program will have heard of the Supreme Court, which is the state's major trial court for civil matters in each county uh, throughout the state, also for uh, felony criminal cases in New York City. Uh, It accepts major cases involving debts or damages, uh, claims for for payment of those debts or damages. 
and it also has special proceedings like divorce proceedings, uh, in some cases guardianship proceedings. That court, the Supreme Court, dates back to 1691. It's an important court. It is unlimited jurisdiction. It can accept any case, though its normal caseload is as a described. Uh, and the other court that you mentioned is the Chancery Court. Uh, it was a specialized court, like the Supreme Court, modeled on English precedents, uh, founded in 1683, abolished in 1847. It's jurisdiction was merged into the modern Supreme Court. Something I'd like to say that kind of influences my remarks here, and it's important for your listeners who may want to use court records for research. Even though the forms and the documents are complicated, often technical, the remedies available in these courts, most of them are inherited from English law, and they are available to us today, uh, even in much changed form uh, as they were in the colonial period. Okay. And then what types of cases were heard? You mentioned uh, divorce and guardianship. Uh, so for I guess, talking specifically about each of the courts, so uh, sure. Supreme Court and then Chancery Court. I'm going to switch order. I'm going to talk about Chancery Court first. As I mentioned a minute ago, uh, Chancery Court it was a specialized court, uh, active in New York from 1683 to 1847. It had specialized jurisdiction. And among the case types in Court of Chancery were divorce proceedings and also separation or annulment proceedings and also uh, many guardianship proceedings, uh, guardianship uh, proceedings could also occur in surrogate's court when a parent had died, but it could uh, guardianship uh, a guardian could be appointed by the chancery court as well. Obvious importance for family history, because guardians are appointed for protection of the property and the persons of minors, as well as widows, uh, and the documents would include information about family relationships, even birth dates, sometimes. And I'll add another category with guardianships. Uh, when I was creating my probate talk, uh, I found mm -hmm. guardianships for so-called lunatics, so so that's incapacitated right. people. Yeah, that's a, the general uh, kind of umbrella uh, term. And it's anybody, any person or even a corporation that needs judicial protection because their, their persons or their assets are, are endangered. Okay. And it, did that just involve property? Did, were guardians appointed just for uh, looking over property? For, for minors and widows, it was also expected that the, the, the guardian safeguard the interests of the individual. Uh, and so it wasn't just the property. It was making sure, for instance, the child was educated, uh, housed, clothed, and so on. Okay. All right. And then how about the uh, Supreme Court? What types of cases uh, did it okay, hear? Good, good question. <laughs> the, the Supreme Court, then and now, and by then I mean back to the colonial period as well as now, uh, most of its business is civil litigation, and by that I mean claims uh, for payment of debt or damages arising out of a commercial transaction or maybe a, an injury of some sort where damages can be claimed. Uh, a, a great example would be O.J. Simpson, who was acquitted in a criminal trial but convicted in a civil trial for damages for causing the death of an individual. And the damages involved uh, a huge amount of money. Uh, damages and debts have been the major part of the caseload of the Supreme Court for hundreds of years. Uh, that kind of d documentation is not very important at all for genealogy, but it could be very important for biography, for reconstructing the business relationships uh, of a particular individual, uh, either as a plaintiff or a defendant. People have, then and now are sometimes uh, making bad decisions about uh, business relationships or getting into debt, and they get sued. Uh, 
those lawsuits create paper, and we got the records. <laughs> okay. It's interesting you you distinguish between biography and genealogy. Uh, I, I I combine the two. So when I'm researching a person, I'm I'm also including the uh biography of the person. So mm-hmm. go, going to the back to the Supreme Court records, uh when I was doing research on my talk about the uh tenants uh in New York, discovered that they would show up in the Supreme Court records because of ejectment mm-hmm. proceedings. So will you explain a little right. bit about that and how, what we would find there, too? Okay, let, let me uh, just uh, do a little translation here. Ejectment is what it sort of sounds like. You eject or remove a person uh, from property. But more legally speaking, an ejectment proceeding in the old common law uh, procedure in the New York courts inherited from England uh, meant a, a claim by a person for recovery of real property uh, to eject a person from actual possession of the property or eject them from a legal claim to the property. Uh, it could be either or both. Um, Ejectment often involves uh, multiple plaintiffs or, and also multiple defendants. It could be very useful in locating an ancestor. Where did they live or occupy land? Um, ejectment cases were common in the early uh, history of New York because land was just being settled. Survey lines were often imprecise, and there were lots of disputes over land and ownership. Okay, and actually, I was just going to ask too, too as I, I will we'll point out later on uh, the the book that you were uh, you co-author, author of Duly and Constantly Kept, uh, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But I, as I was reading about the history of the Supreme Court, the what struck me is that many of the cases involved land. So, in addition to the ejectment, which would be a tenant. Uh, who is being sued by a landlord. What other types of land cases where people are trying to get damages? What, what will we find in the Supreme Court records? Oh, the, the, the major type uh, of uh, land proceeding uh, that would be of great interest often to uh, family historians is what's called partition. That means land is owned or occupied by multiple individuals. Uh there are two situations where, for instance, a parent dies uh, without a will. The parent's real property is therefore uh, distributed to the heirs, let's say the children, but there's no dividing lines. Uh, And partition is a legal proceeding in Supreme Court, or sometimes it was also in Chancery Court, to either divide and parcel out the land to the heirs or to sell off the land and split the proceeds. It could be either type of proceeding. And part of the uh, documentation of the partition proceeding is documentation of the persons having rights in the land and their relationship to uh, often a parent. And obvious importance in the early years of New York when other kinds of records about family relationships are not very common. Okay. And then the Supreme Court at some point also probated wills. When when did that happen? Oh, that's a, Jane, you, Jane, you ask these very complicated questions, and I'll try to uh, provide a simpler <laughs> answer. Uh, during the colonial period, there was one probate judge for the entire colony of New York. That was the governor who appointed uh, deputies who were called surrogates, Uh, who handled uh, routine administrative matters relating to a probate of wills, settlement of estates, that kind of thing. Uh, Starting in 1787, as any of your uh, hearers, listeners uh, in New York are aware, surrogates court in each county handled probate matters. That is probate of wills, appointment of executors, uh, administrators, settlement of estates, and so on. Until 1830, uh, both the Chancery Court and the Supreme Court, in certain circumstances, could prove a will. 
one circumstance was where uh, property was in dispute or the heirs lived out of state uh, or the decedent died out of state. Another situation was uh, that a local court could prove a will if there was not much property involved. Probate records, I think, are a subject to themselves, uh, maybe the subject of another program. <laughs> definitely, definitely. And then the uh, Supreme Court also uh, served as an appellate court as well. So it was it was hearing trial cases, but then also appeals? That's right. As I mentioned earlier, the Supreme Court then and now, and by then I mean hundreds of years ago, then, now, meaning right now, uh, has trial terms in every county in the state. Uh, then and now, the Supreme Court also has an appellate function where there is a dispute during trial or during pleading in a civil case. You know, an error occurs or is alleged to have occurred. Uh, the, either the plaintiff or defendant, uh, depending on the situation, has the right in many cases to appeal the, uh, to a higher tribunal, the Supreme Court, or, or since 1847, even the Court of Appeals, to resolve the error. Uh, generally speaking, uh, appeals are uncommon then and now, uh, but if an appeal occurs, uh, the documentation can be very extensive because you have to uh, provide to the appellate court a summary of the proceedings in the trial court. You have to reduce it to writing. Uh, and writing produces documents, and the documents can be very useful. Okay. All right. Very good. Um, so, w right, we're going to uh, talk about the logistics of the courts uh, when we come back. This is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back. Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. As you're listening on Blog Talk Radio, you have a few options. Uh, you're going to see some uh, social media buttons on your page. Please share the Forget-Me-Not Hour with your friends and family on social media. Uh, you'll also find uh, uh, six years plus of the Forget-Me-Not Hour episodes in the Blog Talk archives please take advantage of the shows. Many of them are timeless about uh, New York history and genealogy and about other aspects of history and genealogy uh, other than New York. So, so please do take advantage of that. And you can take uh, 
the Forget Me Not Hour on the road with you on iTunes. So you can upload, download the, the uh, podcast and listen on the go. And you'll find that under Jane E. Wilcox. So today we are talking about the New York uh, Supreme Court of Judicature records and the Chancery Court records. Um, my guest is Jim Fultz from the New York State Archives. So Jim, before we, we move on and talk about the logistics and districts and, and judges and, and all of that uh, regarding the two courts, is there anything else that we need to know about the Supreme Court and or the Chancery Court and the types of cases that each would hear? I'll speak a little more about Supreme Court, and I think the uh, image a lot of us have, and I once had it myself before I learned more about the courts, is of all these trials. Uh, you know, there's a claim for debt or damages, uh, you know, in a commercial relationship of some sort. So it goes to trial in the county before the justices of the Supreme Court, then or now. Answer is usually not. Uh, even in the colonial period, most claims for debt or damages never went to trial. Uh, the defendant either admitted he owed the plaintiff the money or the case was withdrawn by the plaintiff for some reason or, or maybe settled out of court. So uh, there's a lot behind the scenes that would not be documented in court records, but you do have at least uh, you know, the public statements, the legal claims of Plaintiff and defendant, uh, even if the case didn't go to trial, uh, but did go to judgment, uh, there's something there that tells something. Okay. And actually, as you're talking, I, a, a question came to mind. I, I work with the Dutchess County Court of Common Pleas records, which have been digitized. They're online at uh, Family Search. And, and I look at some of these, and there is nothing else. You know, there's just one uh, paragraph in the court record and that's it so you're you're saying that these cases were either uh, settled out of court or you know something that did not progress the case through the court system so my question that's exactly right okay so my, my question there then is that in these court of common pleas records which is a county court uh it, it, as i said i look at the mostly the duchess county i and Many of these cases are cases of debt, so they're they're looking for damages. Why did somebody choose to take a case to the Court of Common Pleas for debt versus taking it to the Supreme Court? So the difference between those two courts, just very so we can I can uh, understand better. As I mentioned before, the the state court system in New York is very very complicated. It's the most complicated, in my opinion, of any of the 50 states. New York is bigger uh, and more complicated in lots of ways. Uh, the court system has been remarkably conservative and uh, also complicated, as I said. And during the period we're talking about, which is before the middle of the 19th century, there were two levels of trial courts. One, as you say, in the county level, the County Court of Common Pleas, and the other, the Supreme Court of Judicature, uh, and its kind of cousin, the uh, Court of Chancery. The two common law courts, that is common pleas in the county level, the Supreme Court uh, throughout New York, had very similar jurisdiction. I'm not going to get into the differences. They're minor. Uh, you could choose your tribunal. Uh, it depended maybe on when the court was holding a term. It could depend also on whether you thought a particular judge would be more favorable, uh, more knowledgeable uh, in your particular case. Uh, it could have to do with where your attorney was resident. Uh, we don't fully know, can't know the answers to those questions, why a particular court was chosen, but the fact is you had a choice of tribunals. Okay, very interesting. All right, All right so then let's talk about the logistics of, of these courts. So... Uh, you know, we've got the the justices, uh, and I guess if we need to distinguish between uh, Supreme Court and and Chancery, uh, please do so as as you answer the question. So, are are, are the justices traveling around the state, or are, are they stationary at one one point? How how does this all work? 
Oh, you, you asked these multi-part questions. <laughs> I'll start <laughs> with the first part, which was, did the okay. justices travel around? And, and the answer is absolutely yes. They were often called circuit judges holding a circuit court. That's for trials in each county courthouse. Uh, one or more times a year, uh, Supreme Court justices did that. Uh, up to 1847, uh, starting in that date, uh, there have been Supreme Court justices uh, available in every county in the state. Uh, back in the early years of New York, there were no more than five justices for the entire of all of New York up to the 1820s, and then they increased the number. Today, there are over 300 Supreme Court justices. So it reflects, you know, a huge increase in caseload. Uh, so, yes, you're asking what happened when a justice went to town, uh, showed up at the courthouse. What happened then, right? Yes. Okay. A jury has to be impaneled. And under common law, that is our system of law inherited from England, every, plain, every defendant in a civil matter or criminal matter has a right to a jury trial. Uh, it's enshrined in our state constitution. It's enshrined in our federal constitution. It's an inheritance from English law. It's one of our fundamental rights. And so the sheriff had to summon jurors. They still do this. We all get those summonses. They did it back in the colonial period as well. And we have hundreds of jury lists uh, in these records that came to the state archives from New York City. Uh, early this year that lists jurors, sometimes with occupations and residences. Uh, that's just an aside, but these could be very important uh, genealogical sources, I think. But get, getting back to the main question, uh, most, most cases never went to trial. They were settled basically by filing, uh, filings of papers by attorneys. But when, an attor when a case did go to trial, you had to impanel a jury. Uh, and oral testimony was provided to the jury and the justices. Uh, it was not reduced to writing, uh, but the verdict was brought in by the jury, jury either uh, guilty or not guilty, and the judge of the court awarded debt or damages or restitution of property. Uh, those were the options. Uh, and the documents were returned to the court clerk. Uh, you've referred earlier to the fact that uh, the organization of the courts was complicated. There were clerks' offices before 1847 in four places, uh, New York City, Albany, Utica, Geneva. Um, and each one of those clerks maintained records. When the courts were reorganized in 1847, the records, as we talked about at the beginning, were split up. The records relating downstate both Supreme Court and Chancery Court remained at the New York County Clerk's Office until early this year. Uh, the records of the upstate uh, courts, uh, Chancery Sessions Upstate, Supreme Court Sessions Upstate, all of their filed papers and parchments went to the Court of Appeals in Albany, where they remained uh, in the court's custody until 1982, when they were transferred to the state archives. That, what I'm talking about is the kind of merger you referred to earlier in our conversation, which means that the records that have been split up since about 1800, when the regional offices of these courts started to be established, are now for the first time in over 200 years reunited here at the State Archives in Albany. Yay. <laughs> I think a lot I of people... Agree. We're very happy when that happened. So then let's also talk about chancery. So chancery court did not have justices. They had chancellors? The the, the chancellor was the head of the court system, uh, uh, theoretically speaking. And in, in during the colonial period, the royal governor served as the chancellor which people complained about a lot because it was a mixture, a melding of both executive and judicial authority and power. And if a political faction did not like the governor, uh, who also served as the head of the court system, 
uh, that caused a great deal of tension and resentment. But nevertheless, as I talked about, Chancery provided types of legal proceedings and legal remedies that were very important. We've talked about guardianships. Uh, we've talked about uh, partition proceedings in Chancery. Chancery was also very important for very complicated commercial cases involving business people with a lot of money, a lot of interests, a lot of stake in the system. And they wanted good justice, fair justice. Uh, and of course, by that they meant cases that went their way. Uh, and that's why Chancery is a center of political controversy during the colonial period. Starting in the early statehood period, there was an independently appointed chancellor. And starting in 1823, there were vice chancellors, uh, assistants basically, to the chancellor operating in eight districts of New York State, statewide. First circuit down in New York City, uh, eight, seven other circuits in various locations, groups of counties all around New York State. Okay. So am, am I understanding this correctly? So so colonial period, we have the governor who is also acting as the chancellor, and he is, is he going back and forth between New York City and Albany to hear uh, chancery cases? In the colonial period, chancery cases, all of them were held uh, in the governor's chambers uh, in the fort at the very tip of Manhattan. That was the seat of government in the colonial period. That's where the records were. That's where the governor, the governor's office and residence were. Uh, chancery was very different from Supreme Court in one extremely important respect, and that is chancery never used juries. That meant you didn't have to get 12 men at that period, of course. Women couldn't serve on juries in New York till 1937. Uh, so 12 men and a jury, plus the attorneys, plus the parties, plus the judge, you know, you need a courtroom for that. The chancellor received all evidence in writing, and therefore chancery case files are very informative. Let's say a guardianship case. It's all there in writing. All the evidence the judge considered, the chancellor considered, uh, to decide a case, uh, and he decided both facts and the law. There was no jury, as I keep saying is all in the case file. That's why chancery case files tend to be much more informative and more interesting uh, than Supreme Court files. Okay. And then when I, when I was doing some, actually I was looking for a divorce proceeding, uh, I think in the 1810s, 1820s, and I was using records. They were, they were located in Albany, the, the, the couple. Uh, and I was looking at chancery records in Albany at the State Archives. How, how was that division made with the chancery records that some stayed in New York City and then some were also in Albany in, in the early 1800s? Were, were there it's, two it's, yeah. In effect, there were two clerks. Uh, there, starting in the 1780s, there was not sing, a single clerk uh, for the Court of Chancery, colony and statewide, but rather because of the shift of population, the growth of the state, as I said, starting in the 1780s, there were two clerks for the Court of Chancery. And one of those clerks was still in New York City after the British evacuated New York City in 1783 at the end of the Revolutionary War. But the second clerk was in Albany. And the clerk, Chancery clerk's records in Albany, always stayed in Albany. They went to the Court of Appeals in 1847, came to the State Archives, as I mentioned earlier, in 1982. And the Chancellor himself would hold court either in New York City or Albany. He sometimes held court in his own home. Uh, one of the most famous early Chancellors, uh, late 18th century, early 19th century, was Robert R. Livingston, who held court at his family estate, Claremont, in, in Columbia County. Another later chancellor was Reuben Walworth. He held his court at his home, his mansion, in Saratoga Springs. This was a very clubby court, let's call it. <laughs> uh, but the, the records, as you say, and it's important for researchers to know, were split and now are combined, but they are still okay. indexed separately. Okay. 
All right, and we're going to talk about the organization a little bit later. So then both the Supreme Court, where we eventually have four districts, New York City, Albany, Geneva, and Utica, and then Chancery, where we end up with eight districts. Are, are there maps that can show us what was included in each of these districts? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, I think what we need is some, a digital map to put on our website because the uh, boundaries of these circuits, which operated from 1823 to 1847 and are the uh, predecessors of the modern judicial districts, and there are now 13 of them statewide, uh, their boundaries kept changing. Uh, they were based on county lines, groups of counties. Uh, don't get me going because it will confuse your audience. <laughs> the first circuit was always New York City. That's eighth circuit was Buffalo and the others were in between. Okay. All right. Um, and then uh, just uh, going back a little bit on the logistics of uh, bringing a, a case to court. Uh, so I have a complaint against uh, somebody who owes me money. I, basically, I contact a lawyer who is, you know, knows the system, and then that sets off the, the case, and the lawyer then takes it from there? Almost always people got lawyers, yeah. There's very rare cases where somebody was smart enough or fool enough to represent themselves, but that uh, was always an extremely rare occurrence. Uh, a lot of this was done by mail. Filings with the clerk were done not in person, but simply through the, the mails once there was a postal system. Um, but trials, of course, were everybody had to show up uh, in the Supreme Court. In the Chancery Court, as I explained, witnesses did not appear before the chancellor or a vice chancellor. All of their evidence was reduced to writing in the form of depositions, responding to interrogatories or interrogations. Uh, so Chancery Court was, as I said before, a much smaller, uh, more intimate kind of experience. Okay. All right. Uh, we are going to take a break right now. When we come back, we're going to talk about the types of records uh, that were generated in, in each of the courts. Uh, so this is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told, and we'll be right back.
Welcome back. This is the Forget-Me-Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. We will be back on the third Wednesday of the month. That is June 21st at 10 o'clock in the morning. And the show is going to be Freemasons and Masonic Records. My guest will be Alvy Davidson. He's a professional genealogist and private investigator, as well as a 32nd degree Mason, which he tells me is Scottish Rite. Uh, so he was going to be uh, telling us about the history of uh, Freemasonry and what types of records we can find in, in lodges. And after that, I am uh, going on hiatus uh, for a while. Uh, I'm considering whether I'll bring the show back at the end of the year or possibly early next year. Um, but uh, the Forget-Me-Not Hour will be on hiatus uh, for a few months. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch me uh, speaking in October. I will be at the Western New York Genealogical Society's uh, seminar, all-day seminar, at the beginning of October. I think it's the 8th. Uh, also speaking there will be Blaine Bettinger, uh, our DNA expert, and also Josh Taylor, the president of the New York Genealogical and Biographical Society, as well as a few other speakers. Uh, so that's going to be in Buffalo. Uh, at the beginning of October. And then on uh, October 21st, I'm going to be in Syracuse at the Central New York Genealogical Society uh, meeting, and it's going to be an all-day seminar, and I will be giving four talks at that point. Uh, So please do catch me in October in Central and Western New York. Today, we are uh, continuing to talk about our court records at the New York State Archives. Uh, so, Jim, you talked, to, you started talking about some of the records. So, um, in England, when I was there, I got immersed in duchy court records. Uh, I was looking for some land and had some cases involving my my ancestors in Derbyshire, and my uh, expert there uh, told me that the records were split into uh, basic documents. So we had the bill which was the plaintiff's charge against the defendant. We had the answer, uh, which was the defendant's answer to the charge. We had the replication, which then the plaintiff had a chance to reply. And then we also had interrogatories and depositions uh, with the witnesses. So it, it was very cut and dried when I was looking through these records. Fortunately, they were in English and not Latin. Um, is it that simple for the New York courts that we're talking about, Supreme and Chancery? The, the, the outline of procedure you're talking about is fundamental uh, to our system of justice, after all. There is a, a dispute. Uh, there is, as you say, a complaint uh, under our court system. Uh, the person against whom the complaint is lodged by the plaintiff has the right to answer, reply. Uh, The technical term for it in English law and even in early New York law and to the present is called pleading. Uh, It's the uh, back and forth statements of uh, both legal claims and the facts that support those claims or denials of claims uh, that results in an issue that can go to trial if there is a trial, or can go to a judge for decision if there is no trial. It's, uh, that's the most simple way I can talk about it. Uh, but chancery procedure uh, was rather different from that of the Supreme Court, uh, kind of a parallel procedure, as I've talked about, but there are different names uh, for both the parties to the proceeding and different names for the various documents that are filed. Uh, one of the things we do as archivists is to understand the courts, the jurisdiction of the courts, the organization of the courts, and the records they produce, which the farther back you go in time are more complicated. Does that help? Okay. It does. So, <laughs> what, so what are the terms for the Chancery Court, just, just so we have those in our, our minds as we are thinking uh, I'll, I'll about I'll give this. you a, a couple examples. Uh, the person who initiates a proceeding in the court of chancery that involves an adversarial relationship is called the complainant who complains, files a bill of complaint. 
In the Supreme Court, uh, then and now, the person who initiates the proceeding, uh, a claim against another person, is called the plaintiff. In both the Supreme Court and Chancery Court, however, the person responding to the complaint was called the defendant. Uh, in the Supreme Court, the initial document uh, filed on behalf of, uh, by the attorney, let's say, on behalf of the plaintiff was called a declaration or a narratio or narration of the claim. As I mentioned before, in the Court of Chancery, it was not called that. It was called a complaint or bill of complaint. So we have a parallel kind of structure with different terminology, and it helps okay. to know what means what. Okay, and, and where can we find this information? Uh, let's let's talk about duly and constantly kept uh, at this point, and then and then for chancery. Okay, um, Jane refers to a book I wrote for the state archives, published by the archives, and jointly uh, by the Court of Appeals back in 1991, which was the 300th anniversary of the Supreme Court that we keep talking about. Uh, because there was no other source of information about the history of the court and the records it produced and the court procedure that explains the records, I wrote it, you know, based on analysis of the records, uh, reading of the statutes, the court rules, the very old uh, treatises, the technical works written for lawyers. You know, all of that I've summarized in a book about Supreme Court records that were then in the state archives, the upstate uh, records uh, that we talked about before. But really, uh, most of the information in that book uh, applies also to the Supreme Court records we received from New York City earlier this year. Uh, we have online catalog records as well from the state archives that talk about each set or series of records. That's both for the Supreme Court and for the Chancery Court. So there's a lot of explanatory information available online that helps people understand records that we have to say are often very technical and very complicated, but they have stories to tell. Okay, and that's what we're after. Uh, so then what types of records are we going to find I you know I've, I've come across the term docket and I know I've looked at some microfilm of of docket. So what what are these records that that uh, both Chancery and Supreme Court have? I, I think what people are hoping and expecting to find is a one-stop shopping situation for old court records that relate to their ancestors. Uh, there was in some periods of time for some of the court clerks, something that resembles what we would now call a case file. That's particularly true of the circuits of the Chancery Court that existed for about 25 years, 1823 to 1847, where really something very close to what we would call a case file exists, both for the New York City Chancery Court records and the upstate Chancery Court records. For Supreme Court records, there's no one-stop shopping. There are judgment rolls, which are the cases that went to final judgment, an award of money damages or debt by the court. But there are also minute books. There are docket books. There are order books. Uh, there are writs, which are court orders, either commencing a, state, a case uh, in a common law court, uh, Supreme Court, for instance, or ending a case, uh, an order or writ to the sheriff to collect the money on behalf of the prevailing party. All of those things are filed separately, not together. And therefore, you would need to sort of check many sources sometimes to reconstruct a case from start to finish. Okay. And when you say uh, look at many sources to reconstruct, what, what are we using at the state archives to find where the writs are and and everything else involving a Supreme Court case? For all of the court records, we have what we call finding aids, uh, which are lists of contents of individual boxes, date ranges of particular volumes, uh, and you could have judgment rolls for Supreme Court. You could have minute books for either the Supreme Court and also for the Chancery Court. Uh, and you have various kinds of docket books, uh, for instance, which 
list money judgments, uh, what the losing party in the civil case owes. You know, that's a matter of public record then and now. Uh, uh, Title searchers and credit reporting firms use these things and type in this data into their giant uh, nationwide databases. Uh, If you uh, run up a debt in court, the public knows about it for a fee, of course. But it is a public record in the county clerk's office. Uh, And so the information is there, uh, but as as I said, to piece together a case uh, involves uh, multiple steps. Okay. And so basically all of the steps are at the state archives, and we ask an archivist for help. You certainly should. It'll make uh, (laughs) your life easier, my life easier, our lives easier. Uh, That's our job, to make records available, to understand the records, understand the organization that produced the records, New York State government, New York State courts, as I mentioned earlier, are big, complicated, old. There have been lots of changes. There's lots of technical language, uh, you know, unfamiliar names, concepts, uh, processes. Uh, Our job, as I said, is to make them intelligible and to make the records available. Okay. All right. Very good. So when I was uh, looking for my tenants uh, in the Supreme Court records, I ran across all of these fictitious names, and and we've heard them, John Doe, Richard Rowe. Why Mm -hmm. were fictitious names used? You ask these these very hard questions, and I'll try to respond in about 20 seconds. Uh, As I've mentioned in our conversation, New York owes its legal system to England. The legal system, the courts, the uh, court remedies, the court documents, the forms of procedure were extremely complicated and technical. Legal fictions were used in the, even in England by the, uh, say, 17th century and in New York uh, from the 17th through the early 19th century to simplify proceedings while maintaining the fiction of adherence to the accepted traditional legal forms. And therefore, you would have fictitious names that reflected complexities, especially in English land law, real property law, that did not apply to America, uh, but they had to be observed until they were changed by statute, laws passed by the legislature in the middle of the 19th century that greatly simplified uh, court procedure and, and the forms of documents. That's the shortest kind of answer I can give to a very complicated question. Okay. All right. So when I was going through, and I may not have the term right, I, I, I think of it as like a case file. So it, it has, it, it's a folded up, uh, maybe several pieces of paper that uh, tell me what happened with the case. Uh, and then on the outside is somebody versus somebody. Often I would find a fictitious name with the real name of the plaintiff, and this is for the Supreme Court, versus a fictitious name and then the real name of the defendant. But sometimes I would see just two fictitious names. And You have to read, that, the, read the whole document. It, it'll say okay. somewhere who, who they were. Okay, and and that was I, I was thinking exactly. I, it, I would have to go into the document, you know, pull apart the the fold, and, and then actually read through to see who who this uh, case pertained to, or who the plaintiff and defendant were. So the, the fictitious names, um, in in my mind, pose somewhat of a challenge if if I'm trying to just very quickly look through what the cases are. Uh, there are lots of challenges in genealogy research. This is just one <laughs> that, of them. As I say, that is a that is a, a very much an understatement. Um, is there anything else you would like to uh, add about the the records before we talk about uh, the loyalists? All of these records are more or less fragile, uh, especially the records that of the early courts that came to the state archives in early uh, 2017 were exposed to centuries of polluted environment in New York City. Records, filed papers, 
of the same age and probably the same paper manufacturers uh, that were stored in New York City are noticeably more fragile and brittle and deteriorated than comparable documents filed upstate. That's a tribute to the polluted environment uh, uh, of New York City. Uh, you know, for that, because of that problem, uh, records have to be handled with great care. Uh, we have to take steps to ensure that they're handled carefully. Uh, copying may be restricted. Uh, we have to do it to save the records. Okay. All right. And then uh, you mentioned to me a, a couple of weeks ago in the Supreme Court records uh, that just came from New York City that there is wonderful information about the loyalists. Uh, this is the time of the American Revolution. What are we going to find in the Supreme Court records? As I've talked about before, the Supreme Court was the most important court, uh, common law court, uh, general jurisdiction, uh, except for chancery jurisdiction, in early New York. That's both in the colonial period, and that court was continued uh, by the first state constitution of 1778. The state government was basically in exile from the state capital. New York City was occupied by the British. Very interestingly, the minute book containing entries of the last sessions of the colonial Supreme Court in the royal province of New York was somehow grabbed by somebody, and the same book was used for the entering the first minutes of the state Supreme Court in Kingston in 1778. And many of the proceedings in that minute book relate to the in indictment and conviction of loyalists. I think there's probably several hundred of them. And the minute books give you only the names, you know, the date of the indictment by a grand jury, uh, the date of the final conviction. Almost, I've not seen a trial yet. They were convicted in absentia. What we also have received from New York City early this year is the filed papers that go with the indictments, the depositions and the indictments themselves. These have never been used by historians. There's a long literature of history of loyalism in New York. None of those historians ever use these records. They contain important new information about loyalists. Uh, they're waiting for anybody who wants to use them. Uh, they're fragile, but they're available. Uh, that's ex very exciting. Uh, do you have any plans to digitize any part of these records? We are considering a digitization effort for minute books of the Supreme Court because they are kind of the outline of proceedings. You know, the filed papers and parchments of these early courts amount to several million files. The amount of uh, data entry to produce even indexes is immense. Digitization would be an enormous uh, amount of resources, uh, especially because of condition. These were, many of these file papers are literally falling apart. They can barely be touched, uh, you know, uh, to prepare them for digitization would be require at least stabilization uh, before they could be handled and, and photographed. Uh, I do want to say, as you may be getting to anyway, uh, the New York City files of Supreme Court, Chancery Court, have indexes, electronic indexes, to both plaintiffs and defendants. These uh, indexes were produced with state grants from the state archives in the 1990s, there are millions of names. And how will that be made available? We will search those uh, electronic indexes, but they are not user-friendly. They are in a, a display. They, they are not in a display format. They are in a uh, what's called a comma-separated values uh, format, which is ba basically blocks of text. Uh, they contain some typos, some uh, uh, displaced elements. They are far from being ready for going online, but we will search them. Okay, and, and so that's something that we would need. To, we would need to contact ask the archives to do. 
Okay. Exactly. All right. And and how can we contact the archives? Oh, we have email a r c h r e f at n y s e d dot g o v archref at n y s e d dot g o v. Call us up at five one eight four seven four eight nine five five. We have an answering machine, and we answer the phones six days a week. Okay, very good. Um, before we wrap up with my uh, final questions about your ancestry, is there anything else you would like to add about uh, Supreme Court and Chancery Court? Uh, the upstate records are not as well indexed as the downstate records. Uh, we received, as I said before, the upstate records of Chancery Court, Supreme Court, in 1982. They do not have electronic indexes. In many cases, for Supreme Court especially, there are no indexes at all. But there are docket books listing losing parties, winning parties by date. Uh, you have to search, and it's not easy. Uh, but records can be located. It just takes a lot more time than for the downstate records. Okay. All right. But happily, they are together. Um, so that was, is wonderful news. Sure is. Okay. So, Jim, uh, we'll end with your own ancestry. Uh, what is your own ancestry? You're asking a mongrel American. Uh, it's a mixture of German, Scottish, English, Dutch, French, Irish, uh, a little Swedish. Uh, you know, maybe there's more. I don't know about yet. Maybe <laughs> I should have my DNA done. That that would be interesting. Um, and so, when when is your earliest group here it, with the Dutch? Uh, various time periods of immigration re- ranges from the 1640s to the 1840s. Okay. All right. And then, is there any ancestor who has called out to you? I've found an awful lot of information on German ancestors in Western Germany uh, dating back to this early 17th century. The records in that part of Germany are very good. And I'm also reading about society, economy of Germany uh, in past centuries. Germany in past centuries was not prosperous or peaceful. Uh, my The hometown of my German ancestors, but it simply was burned down three times in the 17th, early 18th centuries, by wars, uh, by competing armies. Uh, So it was not a happy time uh, or a prosperous time, and I understand better now why my German ancestors came to this country. Sure, sure. Okay, thank you. Uh, So, Jim, this has been a wonderful show. It, It has helped me straighten out the differences between the, the court records. And uh, I am looking forward to using the records and especially uh, looking at, uh, would love to look at the loyalist information as well. So thank you for sharing the Supreme Court and uh, Chancery Court records with us today. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. And um, this is the Forget Me Not Hour. Your ancestors want their stories to be told. Have a good day. <laughs>